This is Andrew Womack, and welcome to this brand new tape series on lessons from the Christmas story for all seasons. It's kind of a strange name, but uh, that's very descriptive of what this entire tape set is about. Let me just say that, um, you know, many people have a lot of different feelings about Christmas. To some people, I mean, it is something that they revere. It's the favorite time of the year. Other people, and I'm talking about Christians here, reject it as a pagan holiday and see all of the compromises and things. And so there's a lot of um, contradictory ideas, different feelings and opinions, even among Christians. And in my own life, I remember before I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, before I was actually a fanatic about the things of God, just growing up in a Christian home, even as a teenager, like 12, 13 years old, I remember uh, after my father died that it was just my mother and my brother and me. My sister would come back and bring her family. She was married. But, you know, I, even as a, a early teenager, I decided that, boy, we were spending a lot of money on these gifts, and you had to kind of give a better gift every year, and it was... One of these things that sometimes you didn't even need or desire the things that you got. And I remember when I was 12 or 13, I talked to my mother and said, you know, I'd a lot rather take this money that we spend on Christmas and just give it to the church, give it to a missions program. And we did that. I remember doing it at least one year. We might have done it more than one. And so my point is, before I even got fanatical about the Lord, I saw a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of... uh, carnal things about Christmas. Statistics show that there's a lot of people who actually, I think the highest rate of suicide of any time of the year is at Christmas because of these pressures. Uh, You're focused more. Everybody's talking about love and family. And if you aren't having a positive experience in those areas, it just points out your miserableness and depression sets in. And, you know, there's a lot of bad associated with it. And then when I became uh, spirit-filled and I got really excited about the Lord and I began to study the Word, I found out that there's a lot of pagan practices involved in Christmas, that the origin of the Christmas tree, depending on who you follow, uh, Martin Luther is often credited with it. But I think if you go back even further than that, uh, you know, other people used to bring trees into their house and it wasn't a godly custom. I think Martin Luther kind of sanitized it Christianized it and gave some religious meaning to it. But so much of what's used as the celebration of Christmas is actually uh, pagan in its origin. The Yule log, of course, the entire Yule season was a reference to the uh, sun god, the worship of the sun god. And it was during the winter solstice. It was around there and Uh, It was associated with a lot of pagan practices, and just like so many things, the Catholic Church came along, and um, they saw converts to quote-unquote Christianity. Probably they were more converts to religion, not true believers in the Lord. But they saw these people converted to Christianity, but then when these pagan holidays came around that were very festive and all of these things, the people would want to go back and participate, and there was a possibility of losing their Christian converts, back to the pagan festivities. And so because of that, the Catholic Church um, established Christian holidays to counter these pagan rites. That's what uh, Halloween was all about. Uh, There is a demonic celebration there, and the church sanitized that, Christianized it. Same thing happened Uh, With Easter, of course, the resurrection of Jesus did fall around that time, and so that was maybe coincidental. But so often the Catholic Church, uh, you know, took things that were rooted in paganism and tried to Christianize them. So anyway, what I'm saying through all of this is I recognize that there is a lot of carnality, a lot of tradition, a lot of things in Christmas that were wrong. Because of this, uh, when I first became fanatical about the Lord, I just didn't want anything to do with that. And even though my family, uh, talking about after I got married, my wife and my kids, we always had presents, and we uh, justified that by standing on the Scripture that says, if you give to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. We would have a birthday cake for Jesus. 
realizing that, uh, you know, December the 25th isn't the actual birth date of Jesus. I don't think anybody really believes that, but it was just a day established to remember it and to celebrate. We would have a birthday cake for Jesus. We'd give gifts to our kids and tell them that when you do it to the least of these, you do it to the Lord. We would read the Christmas story and try and uh, make it as Christ-centered as possible, but we rejected some of the pagan stuff. Anyway, because of this, I have never been really big on Christmas because I worship the Lord every day of the year, and I read the Christmas story all throughout the year. I sing Christmas songs throughout the year. I don't just do it on Christmas time. And it's not so much of an emotional thing as it is really a worship of Christ. And I see that uh, there's a lot of people that compromise that. And Christmas is a fat man in a red suit to a lot of people and gifts and all of these other things. So because of that, I've strayed away from it. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I have come to realize that there are just there is so much junk going on in the world, so much hatred, strife, etc., etc., etc. And regardless of the ways that Christmas has been compromised and that there may be all of these other things, mistletoe and, uh, you know, you could go on and on talking about all of the things that have nothing to do with God, etc. Despite all of that, it's still a time of the year where you can go into a secular store and hear Christmas music. I mean music like Joy to the World, one of the greatest songs, I believe, that has ever been written. And some of these songs that, I mean, glorify God and just glorify God. And people are talking about the Lord. People are remembering the birth of Jesus, and they may compromise it. It may not be in depth. They may be looking at him as a little baby when, of course, Jesus was much more than a baby. But nonetheless, they remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I've just seen the benefit of this, that sometimes this is the only time some people are confronted with this. Our society has embraced it. And for a month or two, a year, you can talk to nearly anybody about God. And so even though there's a lot of junk associated with it, I've gotten to where I really enjoy Christmas. I still weed through it and kick out things I don't think that count. But Man, I'm excited about it. There is a lot of good things that happen. It's a great opportunity to minister and share with people about the Lord. But on this tape set, one of the things I'm doing is I'm taking the occasion of Christmas, the Christmas story, as people phrase it, and I'm taking these truths, but I want to make the application that even though, you know, we talk about these things at a certain time of the year, these truths that are related in the scripture about the birth of Jesus and all of the things surrounding it. They are some of the greatest truths in the word of God, and they're applicable to any time of the year, every time of the year. And one of the purposes that I would like to see accomplished through this is that this is uh, appropriate if a person wants at Christmas time just to go back and study and rehearse and renew themselves. I'm going to be saying some things about uh the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding that, that are going to counter a lot of tradition and religious teaching about the birth of Jesus. It's not the way that the Scripture presents it. It's just become tradition. And I'll be countering some of that, but I'm going to be taking these truths and sharing things that will apply to whatever situation you're in, regardless of what time of the year it is. And I just believe that there's benefit in doing that. So, the birth of Jesus began actually with Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a very, very, very important part of what God did to bring Jesus into this world. And so in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, that's the way he starts it, is with the um, announcement to Zacharias and Elizabeth about the birth of John the Baptist. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now there is so much that could be said on everything. I'm just going to have to highlight some things, but this is one of the things that I want to point out 
that the birth of John the Baptist was a necessity, and it was not coincidental who the parents of John the Baptist were. They were both from the line of Levi. They were priests. They were of the priestly line, which was of a necessity for the birth of John the Baptist. And so these people were of a certain tribe. They fulfilled certain requirements and scriptural requirements for that. Also, this verse, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 6, makes it clear that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now notice, they were blameless, not sinless. Now this is an important point, and as I said, you could make much more of this. I'm just touching on some things here. But the people that God used to help bring the birth of Christ and the birth of his forerunner, John the Baptist, they were people who were seeking God. They were people who were receptive to God. These were people who were walking in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now, it needs to be said that nobody has ever been qualified for God to use them. Everything that God does, he does by grace. None of us are perfect. None of us deserve the things of God. But there are things that you can do to make yourself a candidate for the things of God. God, by grace, wants to bless every single person. But there are things that people do that just constantly stop and thwart God's purposes and plans for their life. The application of this to you is that if you are looking to have God intervene in your life, and if you want God to use you as a channel, you know, there are things that you can do to make yourself usable. You never get to where you deserve things, but you can soften your heart towards God. You can seek God. You can walk before God righteous and blameless, doing the things that you need to do, the things that you know to do. And this is important about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. In verse 7 it says, And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. means they were both old. They were beyond childbearing age. Verse 8, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Here's another point from verses 8 and 9. I was talking about there are things that you can do to make yourself receptive to what God's will and purposes for you are. One of them is that Zacharias was just doing what he was called and anointed to do. You know, he had been praying for a child for a very long time. We'll find that out as we continue to read here. And he could have been so insistent, so focused on, I've got to have this miracle that he couldn't have carried out his normal duties. Those kind of things happen all of the time. I've met Christians who just literally, they can't function because they are seeking God so strong for something. They can't go about their daily routine. They think the only way to contact God is to be shut up in a closet somewhere and just seeking God. Now, no doubt there are times that we need to get intense in seeking God and separate ourselves to God. But notice that Zacharias was doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing his job. He went to work. He was doing what God called and anointed him to do. And the Lord came to where he was and found him. And this is one of the things I think that makes us usable for God is that, yes, we should aspire unto greater things and we should be seeking the Lord for other things, but you need to do what you know to do right then, and be about what God has given you to do. I can relate this to 1 Kings chapter 17 when the Lord sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath, and when he came into the city, this little widow was there gathering sticks so that she could make a fire and fix her last meal. She was believing God for a miracle, as is revealed in Luke chapter 4. The scripture there, Jesus was speaking about this woman and said that, you know, there were many widows in the nation of Israel, but God didn't send Elijah to any of these widows. Instead, he sent him to Zarephath, a Gentile city, to a woman who was outside the covenant. And he's implying that there was a reason that this woman was believing God. 
She was believing that God was going to supply her needs. She could have been at home in her prayer closet just praying and begging and pleading with God. But instead, she was believing God, but she was going about her daily routine. And she was doing something as insignificant as picking up sticks. And Elijah found this woman. God sent Elijah to this woman when she was doing something like just picking up some sticks so that she could make a fire. Here's Zacharias who had been praying and believing God, but he was still doing what he was told to do. And you know what? God found him. I believe that there is a lot of faith involved in just getting up and sometimes forcing yourself to do what you know you've got to do. You can believe for bigger, better things. You can be believing God for a great, miraculous encounter and breakthroughs. But you know what? You need to continue to be productive. You need to continue to do the last thing that God told you to do. Maybe you feel that there's a change coming and you have a desire to just be at home seeking the Lord. And again, there's times where that's appropriate. But as a general rule, you've got to be busy about your father's business. You've got to be doing something. God uses people who are motivated to do something. The people who want to just sit home and do nothing are generally the people that God does not use. Again, God loves all of us. I believe he's got a purpose for everyone. But you know what? God just cannot reward that attitude. You'll find out that many times, we could just go on and on talking about this, the people that God used are people who were already busy doing something. I meet people all of the time that are basically preachers because they can't do anything else. And, you know, I don't think that that's good. I really believe that I could do about anything that God wanted me to do. I was working when God touched my life and when God called me. You know what? I was busy. I had plans. I was doing things. Now, God was a part of my life, and I was seeking him, and I was really looking for something, but I wasn't just sitting in a closet somewhere waiting on God to do something. I was out doing what I knew to do, and God found me. I think that's an important point. In verse 10, it says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. You know, this is something that's common. This happened not only to Zacharias, but it happened to Mary. This same angel, Gabriel, appeared unto Mary, and she also had fear, and the angel told her, fear not. Uh, You can find that nearly every time an angel appeared unto somebody in Scripture, fear fell on them. And I don't know all the reasons for this. Part of it's just because it's abnormal. You don't normally see angels. You don't normally see spirit beings and anything that's outside of the normal that is paranormal, we just automatically, instinctively fear that. And yet it ought to be just the opposite. You know, Zacharias had been praying. He had been looking for God to answer his prayer. We find that out in just the next verse. He should have been anticipating, expecting God to do something. But this isn't uh, unusual or it's not limited to Zacharias. You find the same thing in the book of Acts that when Peter was thrown in prison, it says that the whole church came together and they made prayer without ceasing. And so God sent an angel and loosed him from his bands, delivered him, took him outside of the prison, released him into the city. And then Peter walked unto Mark's house. And uh, when he knocked on the door, a damsel came. And when he said that it was Peter, she ran in and told the people. And they said, no, it can't be Peter. It's got to be a ghost. It's got to be a spirit. And yet they were praying for his release. This was the very thing that they were praying for. And when it happened, they were shocked, saying, no, it couldn't be. You know, this happens more than what we'd like to admit. Many of us are praying for an answer to our prayer. And yet if it was to happen supernaturally, exactly the way we're praying for, we would be as shocked as anybody. It shouldn't be that way. Now, praise God for his mercy. Zacharias' prayer was answered, although his faith may not have been perfect in this area. But I tell you, we can learn by these kind of things. And if you are believing God for a miraculous intervention, if you've got a prayer out there that you've been seeking an answer to, you shouldn't be surprised when God begins to bring it to pass. You shouldn't be surprised to see an angelic being. You shouldn't be surprised to see the miraculous and see things begin to start happening. You ought to expect it. 
You know, I'm not perfect in this area. I certainly don't want to present that. I haven't arrived, but I've left. And I can remember instances in my life when I've been as shocked as anybody. I remember praying for a boy one time with crossed eyes. And uh, I was expecting him to be healed, but maybe gradually. It just seemed too miraculous for it to happen all at once. And when he opened his eyes and looked at me, his eyes were perfect. And I said, I can't believe it, which was a stupid thing to say. But it showed my surprise, and this boy's eyes went back crossed. So I've been guilty of doing that, but I've also renewed myself. And there have been times, even in seeing people raised from the dead, I remember my son was raised from the dead. It took us an hour and 15 minutes after we got the call to get into town and find out what happened. And during that period of time, I had prayed and believed for him to be raised from the dead. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen. But as I prayed about it, as we got closer to town, I got excited thinking this is awesome. I was anticipating. I was expecting to see a miraculous answer. And sure enough, He was raised from the dead, and today, instead of mourning his death, I'm celebrating the birth of his daughter. (laughs) Praise God. You can get to where you expect to see the miraculous. And in verse 13, here's what the angel said unto him. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Now, you can just imagine that Zacharias and Elizabeth had been praying for a child for a long time. They were now past childbearing age. They probably had had a lot of probably questions, confusion, maybe feelings of condemnation. God, what's wrong with us? And yet their prayer had been heard the entire time. It just wasn't the fullness of time. I think that's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, When the fullness of time was come. This answered a prayer about the birth of the Messiah and then the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. John was born just six months before the birth of Jesus. And so the answer to Zacharias' prayer was tied to the fullness of times for the Messiah coming. But the point is, even though that they hadn't seen the manifestation, God had already selected them. God already had the plan. Their prayers were heard before this angel appeared. And the angels said that they would have joy and gladness and many would rejoice at his birth. Did you know if they would have operated in faith, which they may have, we don't know the fullness of this story, they could have rejoiced because they had a promise that God was going to answer their prayer. And God didn't just give them any child. He gave them a child that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 was the greatest prophet that had ever lived prior to Jesus being born. God gave John to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and John proved to be the greatest saint in the Old Testament. It wasn't just any child. It was a very special child. And I'm sure that there was hardships and thoughts and things that they dealt with, but if they would have known what the end would have been, they could have rejoiced before they saw it. Well, did you know that we do have promises in the Word of God that promise us that we are going to get the things that we've prayed for? Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them right then, and then you shall, future tense, have them. That's out of Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Did you know if we really operate in faith, you can rejoice before you see your answer? Praise God. That's an awesome, awesome truth. And so no doubt that when Zacharias and Elizabeth saw this angel, when Zacharias shared this with Elizabeth, when she became pregnant, that they began to have joy. And then as time went on, their joy increased. But, you know, it could have happened even before that if they would have just been standing on the promises of God. And in verse 15, here's what Gabriel goes on to say to Zacharias. He says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. In verse 15, when it says that he would drink neither wine nor strong drink, this is referring to the Nazarite vow. And that's an Old Testament vow that was made unto God. And basically, it's just a way of being separate unto God. Samson was like this. And uh, Samson was a Nazarite. And it also says in this same verse that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. In the Old Testament... The Holy Ghost came upon people. There were even times that the Holy Spirit came within people in the Old Testament, but it was never permanent. 
It was temporary, and it never happened on a person before they were even born. But with John the Baptist, he was absolutely unique. There was no one before or since like him who was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. This was very special. This is a great promise. And it was a tremendous indication that there was going to be something very, very special about this child, that there was going to be a special work. In verse 16, it says, "...in many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the wise of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Now, this is basically a quotation from the Old Testament. There's a couple of places. In Malachi chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send before you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. And so John the Baptist was prophesied. And uh, later on, it was asked, the disciples asked Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. It says his disciples asked him, saying, Why then said the scribes that Elias must come first? This was a reference back to these Old Testament prophecies in Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 that I just read. And Jesus answered them and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and shall restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was the Elijah that was prophesied to come before the day of the Lord. And that's what this angel Gabriel is referring to in verse 17. So let's read this again. It says, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, the exact wording of the Old Testament prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. But when it was quoted by Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says, He will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. In other words, this isn't just talking about that he's going to reconcile fathers and children, but it was a metaphor that was being used that he would turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. As you see, disobedience, rebellion in children against authority and against the wisdom, conventional wisdom of older age, it was using the children and fathers to depict that, and it can be proven by the way that Gabriel quoted it. He said instead of turning the hearts of the children to their fathers, he said it would turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So no doubt this is talking about that, yes, there would be reconciliation between people. Strife would be eliminated through the ministry of John the Baptist, but also he would cause people who were rebellious and disobedient like children to forsake their rebellious ways, to repent and come to the Lord. And, of course, John the Baptist did that. That was his message. He came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice this also. He goes on to say in the 17th verse that he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this is important. One of the ministries, probably the primary ministry, of John the Baptist was to prepare the nation for the Lord, to prepare the people for the Lord. Here's a way that it said it over in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is saying that this messenger, Elijah, 
the person who would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, which we now know to be John the Baptist, would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, we know that the ministry of Jesus was prophesied that he was going to come and he was going to bring peace. He was going to reconcile man unto God. God so loved the world that he sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. All of the Old Testament prophets prophesied that the ministry of Jesus would be a positive ministry, reconciling man unto God. And yet, it's said here in Malachi 4.6 that if this messenger who came in the spirit and power of Elijah hadn't have prepared the way that possibly the Lord could have cursed the earth instead of blessing the earth as he did. When we look at this in hindsight and see the fact that Jesus did come not condemning people but giving them grace and mercy, and we know that that was God's purpose and that's the way it worked out, it's easy to just dismiss this and say, well, I don't know what that means, but certainly that never would have happened. And yet this was the prophecy. The point that I'm trying to make through this is that the ministry of John the Baptist was not just something that had to happen and it was fulfilling some kind of a qualification. It was prophesied, but was it really necessary? You know, could God have done it some other way? Well, it says that if he hadn't have turned the people's hearts back towards God, that God could have smitten the earth with a curse. Now, we don't know all the things that are involved here, but it's very possible that through the ministry of Jesus, multitudes of people did turn to the Lord. We have many, many accounts of that in the Gospels. And part of that process of them turning to the Lord was the ministry of John the Baptist. And if John the Baptist hadn't have come and prepared the people for Jesus, if there hadn't have been this turning by the common people to Jesus, and if there had been just wholesale rejection, now there was plenty of rejection against Jesus, but it was really instigated by the religious leaders as a whole, the nation did respond and come around and respond positively to Jesus. And if there hadn't have been the ministry of John the Baptist to prepare these people to do that, and if they had rejected Jesus, well, then it's conceivable, based on this prophecy of Malachi 4.6, that instead of Jesus being the blessing that we know is prophesied and that he was supposed to be, that God could have just cursed the earth because of their rejection of his son. Again, I know that this gets into predestination and prophecy and all of these things, and I understand that Uh, Yes, it was prophesied, and therefore it came to pass. But how did it come to pass? It was because there was a messenger who prepared the way. If this preparation hadn't have been done, there might have been a different response, and therefore we might not have seen things come to pass. I know I'm, I'm getting into theory here, and some people can criticize this, but my point is when I'm trying to make applications from these truths and apply it to us, One of the points I'm trying to get across is that, you know what, things need to be prepared. I think many times we forget that, uh, you know, the miracles, the power of God, the way that God touches people's hearts doesn't just always happen instantly. We hear testimonies of this, but if you could dig a little deeper, there were seeds sown before, just like in the natural realm. You don't plant a seed and instantly get your tree and your fruit and all of these kind of things. There's this seed time and harvest, and that principle is well established in Scripture. And I think sometimes we just miss this, and we try and plant and harvest all at one time and don't prepare the soil and don't give time for the Lord to work on people's lives. And I myself am learning this. I really am. I mean, I used to just figure that, you know, what I was just going to preach the Word of God, and, man, I would force people to receive right then, expect a harvest and a result. And, again, no doubt, sometimes you see what to us looks like instantaneous results. But I've come to realize that with a lot of people that, you know, sometimes you just have to sow the seed. If you try and harvest prematurely, If you try and force a person to a decision at that exact moment to accept the Lord or to accept their healing or to accept some truth that you are trying to share with them, that you know what, you're going to turn them against it. It would be similar to going out on a date and proposing on the very first date to that person and asking them to marry you. And maybe they had a wonderful time on the date, 
Maybe they like you. Maybe they've even thought about marriage. Maybe they've had some of those thoughts. But you know what? If you push them too early and they aren't ready yet, man, it could just drive them away. It could make them say no and run the other direction. Whereas if you had spent a little bit of time wooing them, you know, you could get a totally different results. I think that same thing is true in our dealings with other people. You know, I've learned this when it comes to ministry. I went to some people's services. I won't mention who this is, but someone who's reputed for revival and seeing great things happen. And they saw these supernatural occurrences, all kinds of strange manifestations of the power of God, things that were just outside of the normal. Their uh, revival services were anything but normal. And so I'd heard about this a lot. And so I went and uh, stayed with some friends who lived in that city. And I went to this person's meetings, the first five of them, because I wanted to see if there was something he did that kind of prepared the people for this miracle ministry. And anyway, when I got there, I was surprised. But I found out that like this person had probably, well, there was a lot of things involved. First of all, this person would never go to a church of any person who hadn't already been to his meetings and had some of these supernatural manifestations happen. Now, the point of that is that when this person who had already experienced it and embraced it and had gone back and told his church how his life was changed in these awesome things, well, see, that started preparing the people. So that was the first requirement. And then when he went, probably for the first four or five times, the first four or five services, he really didn't minister the word, but instead he brought people who had had their life changed in his services, and he would have them stand up and testify. So I I wouldn't doubt that there was 20 or 30 testimonies in four services of people whose lives were just radically changed. And they begin to talk about these miraculous encounters and experiences. And then on top of that, of course, there was a reputation that went forth. And so a lot of the people who came to the meetings had already heard these stories. And so all of these things, what it did, it prepared the people. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. Now, that can be overdone, but to a degree, that's good to do that. And one of the things that I left those meetings with was recognition that, you know, sometimes I just stand up and preach like on the subject of healing. And I tell people what the Word says and just expect everybody to receive. And if everybody was seeking the Lord the way that they should and responsive to the Scriptures the way that they should, well, then I believe that that would work. But the truth is not everybody is at the right place with the Lord where they're supposed to be. And, you know, some of the things that will quicken people's faith or prepare them, make them more receptive to what you're saying are things like testimonies. And since that time, you know, I've taken some people who have had miraculous testimonies and I've actually had them travel with me. I've had I've taken them to services with me. I've had them stand up and tell their miraculous testimony. And as a result, we will see two or three times as many people healed. And it's a lot to do with the fact that we are preparing these people's hearts for the reception of the word. It's like planting a seed in the ground. You just don't throw it on the ground. You have to dig a little hole, dig a trench, a furrow to put that seed in. You have to prepare the soil. If you were prepare the soil, aerate it, and get it ready for the seed, your seed will produce much better. And it's the same thing with the ministry of the Word. It's the same thing with everything. If Jesus needed someone to prepare the way before him as John the Baptist did, then you know what? That shows that this is a necessary thing. And I think that many times we are just too short-sighted. We don't recognize that to see a person's life changed, it's not always just a one-time encounter. There is a preparation period. There is a sowing and reaping. And, you know, you may be just a person who's anointed to prepare the soil, to get people ready. You may not be the one who always harvests I felt like that for a long period of time. And uh, you may go through stages where it seems like at times you're just constantly preparing people and getting them ready. There's so many things that happen. You know, everybody wants to put one person and make them, this is the exact ministry that we need. But there are so many diverse ministries in the body of Christ. Christian radio stations 
One that I listen to a lot is just praise music. There's very little preaching, if any. There's not even very many commercials about that. It's just basically praise music. And some people would say, well, man, that's not it. We need to do this. But that might be a part of preparing someone's heart. Someone might turn and be captivated by that music and those words start soaking into them. And then they go to a service and they get born again and somebody thinks, well, man, this is the very first time they've ever been in church and look what God did just instantaneously. But he may have been breaking down walls for months or years through that praise music. There could be just a thousand different things. And so anyway, the point is that Jesus had to have John the Baptist come and prepare the way for the Lord. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was not really what we would call today the senior minister. He was like a second man. John the Baptist, at one time, for a brief six-month period of time, he was the hottest thing going. The entire nation came out to him. People came from everywhere to see John the Baptist. But after six months, Jesus, he pointed people to Jesus, and people began to follow Jesus, and John the Baptist began to decline. And people left his meetings by the drove at his insistence and followed Jesus. And eventually, John the Baptist was shut up in prison. We don't know exactly how long, but at least six months, maybe as long as two years, and wound up being beheaded. You know what? There's not very many people that could handle that. Most people have to be the center of attention and stuff. But John the Baptist, in a sense, was a second man. And yet Jesus said he was the greatest prophet that ever walked on the earth prior to Jesus. He did something that nobody else ever did. That puts him above Moses. That puts him above Elijah. That puts him above David. That puts him above any character you want to name from the Old Testament. John the Baptist was awesome. Awesome. And yet... He was just a person who prepared the way for the Messiah. He was not the focal point himself. In verse 18, this is back in Luke 1:18, it says, And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. You know, Zacharias asked a question, and you could look at this on the surface and think, well, that's not such a bad question, but the angel, Gabriel here, did not have a positive response, and we just have to take assurance in the fact that God is just. And for this severe response to Zacharias, I think that it means we can see the judgment of God here, that this means that Zacharias basically just didn't believe this. This wasn't a question for the purpose of information. Later on, Mary asked Gabriel, this exact same angel, says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? You could look at those two questions, and when it's just written on a piece of paper without an, in, you know, the inflection of the voice, you don't know whether this was really a statement of disbelief, rejection, or whether it was a statement simply for information. Well, I would have to believe that the reaction of the angel Gabriel to Zacharias and then his reaction to Mary would prove that Mary's question was for information, and it was okay Whereas Zacharias, this must have been a statement of unbelief on his part. In verse 19, it says, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. Gabriel is the same angel that appeared unto Mary. It's the same angel that appeared unto Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And so he says, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And right here, the angel made it very clear that Zacharias was not believing his words. In the 13th verse, this same angel said, Zacharias, your prayer is heard, and you are going to have a child. So he had prayed, and it had to have been praying in faith, for his prayer to get answered, and yet here it's a statement that he was in unbelief. He did not believe this. So we see that you can waver. You can be strong at some times and yet waver. You can have belief and unbelief at the same time. And so the Lord shut up his mouth and wouldn't let him talk. Boy, you can make a whole lesson out of this, how important our words are. I haven't got time to really develop that. 
But the Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Out of Proverbs chapter 18, I believe it's verse 21. And uh, your words can either release life or death. Zacharias had been speaking negative things. And it's possible that if the angel would have left him with the ability to speak, he could have cursed his own situation. He could have spoken, oh, this isn't true. It'll never happen. But anyway, the Lord just shut his mouth. And this also provided a sign to show that this was real, and that this wasn't just a figment of his imagination. He was dumb because of it. In verse 21, it says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass, as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. This goes back to what we were saying earlier about one of the things you can do to make yourself available for God to use you in some significant way is that you need to be just doing what you are supposed to do. Do what you are called to do, not shirk your responsibilities. Even after he had had this miraculous encounter with Gabriel and this tremendous announcement, it says that after the days of his administration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. This was a man who was a faithful man. He was doing what he was anointed to do. The priests were divided into 24 courses, and they cast lots. And according to the lots, certain priests, it was their responsibility to run the daily sacrifice, to pronounce the blessing over the people, to perform the duties of the priest. And it was his turn, and he didn't just run out of there and forsake his duties. He fulfilled his obligations before he went home. I tell you what, I think that's one of the reasons that God could use Zacharias and Elizabeth. This guy struggled with unbelief the way that all of us do at times, but you know what? He was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was keeping the commandments and the instructions of the Lord, and he was faithful to do what God had called him to do. I think that's important. I meet people all of the time who are praying that God will give them a brand new car, and yet the car that they've got is a total junker. They don't take care of it. They got five sacks of McDonald's stuff in the back. I've been in people's cars before that when you get in, there's no place to sit. You have to put your feet on top of trash that's in the floorboard. The car's dirty. They don't even take care of it. Now, even if you don't have a lot of money, you can at least keep your car clean. And you know what? Be faithful with the little bit that you've got, and then God will increase it and give it more. But I see people all of the time who, why would God give you a brand new car to mess up? And you say, oh, well, if I had a new one, I'd treat it differently. No, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you aren't faithful in that which is least, you won't be faithful in that which is much, which is what it says in Luke 16. There's a principle here that you need to be faithful doing what you are called to do. He had a miraculous encounter with an angel, and yet he still fulfilled his duties as a priest, and then departed to his house. And in verse 24, it says, And after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. The way that the King James says this is a little awkward in this old English, but I've read other translations that basically Uh, Elizabeth was just so thrilled with what happened that she just separated herself for three months, praising God, rejoicing over this. And then in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And it begins into the story of Gabriel appearing unto Mary. Now, I've got something major that I want to share. This, to me, is one of the greatest revelations that God has ever given me about the birth of Jesus. There is a direct parallel about how Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus and how we receive a miracle from God. And I just don't have time on this tape to do that, and so I'll save that for the next tape. But uh, we'll have to skip over some scriptures here. But let me just skip on over to where John the Baptist's birth came. And you need to remember this is out of sequence. We'll come back and put all of this into its proper sequence on our next tape. In uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 57, 
It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father, and his mother answered and said, Not so, but he should be called John. Now this is exactly what Gabriel told Zacharias to name the child. And Elizabeth is the one who called him John. So this means that there was communication between Zacharias and Elizabeth. And later on, well, it goes on in just the next few verses and talks about how Zacharias asked for a writing tablet and he wrote and said his name is John. So this shows that Zacharias, as a priest, was educated, knew how to write, and apparently he had communicated this vision and all of these things to Elizabeth because she had enough detail to know even what the name of the child was going to be. And uh, so there was communication going on between Zacharias and Elizabeth. He just wasn't able to talk verbally. And verse 61, it says, They said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. You know, this would be worth all of us being struck dumb for nine months if when we opened our mouth we came out with great things and spake and praised God. Amen. Zacharias, he may have had some trouble with unbelief, but I tell you what, over the month he had learned some things, and he started praising God. Man, he was full of joy and praise unto God, and he began to prophesy. Man, this is a great result. Again, if this would be the results of all of us being struck dumb for nine months, it would be well worth the effort. And uh, it says that he spake and praised God in verse 65, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now I'll go on and continue in verse 67, and we'll read some of this prophecy that Zacharias gave. But let me just point out, this says that all of the people in the hill country heard these sayings, and there was a lot of speculation saying, What manner of child shall this be? And I believe that this is part of what played into Simeon, and into Anna, the two who came into the temple when Jesus was being dedicated. They had heard some of these statements. Now, it does say that Simeon had it just revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he saw the Lord's Christ. And that was probably prior to these events with John the Baptist. But nonetheless, these things happened, and then six months later, the birth of Jesus, by the time he came to be dedicated, it was just a little over six months, and certainly Anna and Simeon had heard about this. It was consistent with what they were believing for, and it may have been a part of God directing them to be in the temple at that time. They knew about the time that things were drawing close. Some people, they think that that cheapens the supernatural because these things happen, but I think that this is how God works. You know, you hear something, there's an anticipation, an expectation among the people, and because of that, people start listening to God, and they hear the voice of God better because of it. In verse 67, it says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. So that means father, mother, and child were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Notice how all of these things he says right here are in the past tense. Even though Jesus hadn't been born yet, and certainly his ministry wasn't accomplished, and his atonement wasn't made yet, God calls those things which be not as though they were. In Romans chapter 4, it says that. And so he's putting all of these things in the past tense. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. These are direct references to the Messiah. And it was very clear that Zacharias understood that John was going to be the prophet that would usher in the Christ. In verse 77, it says, To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. You know, that is an amazing statement right there in verse 80, where it says that he was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now, that's strange. Apparently, it doesn't say if this happened, you know, from the time that John the Baptist was weaned or exactly when this happened, but it says he was in the deserts until the time of his showing, which we find out later from other scriptures that he was 30 years old when he came on the scene preaching and the people began to respond to John the Baptist. So for 30 years, we don't know if it was like if he was weaned when he was one or two or three or if it was when he was a young child. We don't know all the things that happened, but certainly this was unusual. John the Baptist did not grow up quote-unquote normal, like most people would say. As a matter of fact, I've read some scholars that believe he grew up with the Essens out around the Dead Sea. This is actually the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were a group of like religious monks is what we would call them today, that their whole society just focused around Scripture, copying out the Scriptures, living it. And probably that's where John lived, grew up, at least spent some time with them, got his knowledge of the Scripture. He was able to quote Scripture, especially the prophecies of Isaiah, a number of different times. And it's possible that from a very young age, he just missed all of the things that normal kids went through. He probably never went through uh, having best friends, uh, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend type situation. A lot of the things that most people go through, his whole life was separated unto God for one purpose. And if you understand that, it makes the agony of his life even more pronounced because his whole life, 30 years, was devoted to being prepared. He came on the scene in six months' time. He saw the greatest revival that had ever happened on the face of the earth, saw multiplied nations turn to God, be in anticipation of the Christ. He got to announce the Christ, sent his followers after the Christ, and then his ministry fell apart in six months' time. He was arrested and put in jail, and for as much as six months, possibly two years, he sat languishing in prison, thinking that, you know, his whole life, had been just for a six-month period of time. And he literally fell into doubt. You can read this in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew. He fell into doubt that Jesus was the Christ. And he literally sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Christ or should we look for another? There's no way to understand that is except a major crisis in his faith because at one time he had zero doubt. He said, this is the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Four different times he said that Jesus was the Christ and had zero doubt. And when the Pharisees tried to play on his ego and say, don't you know that there's more people following Jesus than there are following you? And they tried to get him into jealousy and to pit himself against Jesus. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and undo his sandals. That's how convinced he was that Jesus was the Christ. He had had actually a physical sign. He said that the Lord told him, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending as the shape of a dove, this is the one. He had a visible sign, and then he had an audible voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At one time, all of these signs and the witness of his heart and everything, there was zero doubt. But after six months or two years in prison, he literally doubted whether Jesus was the Christ, which means he doubted 
whether his entire life had been spent for nothing, whether he had wasted this supernatural call and anointing and had sent the world after the wrong person. This was a major crisis. And Jesus dealt with it in a very unusual way. I haven't got time here to say all of that, but I do have this tape entitled, John the Baptist Possessive Doubts. And if you would like to get that, it would answer this. And it's a powerful, powerful teaching about how Jesus calmed John the Baptist doubts by referring him back to the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 35. But John the Baptist was an integral part of what God did in bringing Jesus into this earth. And according to that scripture in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, it's possible that if John the Baptist hadn't have been here and fulfilled his mission, that everything that Jesus did could have been different. God could have smitten the earth with a curse instead of redeemed them and reconciled them unto himself. There's just no way of knowing, but that scripture certainly implies that the ministry of John the Baptist was not just a technicality, it was essential. And the same thing is true for us today. The same thing is true as we present the word to other people. We need to prepare the way of the Lord. Man, there's some powerful truths just in the things that we've talked about. And as I shared with you, the next teaching, as we get into the birth of Jesus, the announcement of the birth to uh, Mary, I think that this is one of the greatest things that the Lord has ever shown me. So praise God. There's a lot more to learn from the traditional Christmas story, lessons that will apply to every season in our life.